Hi, I'd like to welcome everyone to Hear Women Tell. I'm your host, Chris Hillenberg, and today we have a special treat. Linda Goodman is a professional storyteller from Richmond, Virginia. She's a member of the National Storytelling Association and the Virginia Storytellers Alliance. In 1995, she won the Excellence in Storytelling Award, which I believe has only been given once. She's the past program coordinator of Sharing the Fire, held in Boston, Massachusetts, which is the largest and oldest regional storytelling conference in the country. And she also served on the board of the Three Apple Storytelling Festival. She's told her stories at many festivals. She's conducted storytelling workshops, and she's also a playwright. Linda's best known for Daughters of the Appalachians, which is a collection of monologues, and it has been released as a book by uh, Overmountain Press in December of 1999. She's also known for her story, The Bobby Pins, which you'll find in Chicken Soup for the Mother's Soul. And I'm also proud to say that she's a very good friend of mine. Welcome, Linda. Hi, Chris. How are you today? I'm pretty good. And by the way, it's Appalachian. You know, I never know whether to say Appalachia or Appalachian. I, I, I was going to ask you that. I was going to say, what? how do you say that? And actually, it depends on where you live. Where I lived, it was Appalachian. Yeah. I think when I, we remember that by saying, if you don't say it right, we'll throw Appalachia. Oh, <laughs> that's actually pretty good. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to let folks know that we met uh, when I took a storytelling class uh, at a local folk tech in uh, Marlboro, Massachusetts, and I had signed up for a writing class and found out that the class was full, and they said, pick another class, and I saw storytelling. It really sounded interesting, and I thought, well, you know, storytelling is, writing is storytelling. And I took the class, and I, and I just have to say, after that very first class, I was just hooked. You know, yeah, Asipo was a great place for those um, classes that are good life fillers. Yeah, yeah I, I always like taking, uh, I always look for classes that I can take to kind of do something a little different. So. Yeah. I mean, and, and really, you, you've been, you were instrumental in getting me started in storytelling. Well, that's something I can be proud of. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I know that, uh, um, you know, a lot of people think storytelling is, uh, you know, when they think of storytelling, they think of the local librarian sitting in a chair and telling stories to children. But it's it's a lot more than that, isn't it, Linda? Yeah, it's a a whole lot more. Storytelling is, you know, well, it's hard to define because you can hear 25 different storytellers and it will sound like you're hearing 25 different genres. Some of us tell folk tales. Some of us, uh, myself included, tell personal tales. Some of us, myself included, like to write stories that are just fantasies. Um, the difference is this, that we, so sometimes we call ourselves performing writers. Right, right. And I know that uh, myself, I, a lot of the stories that I tell, I wrote years and years ago when I was uh, working on my childhood autobiography, and they just, folded perfectly into storytelling. I remember your childhood autobiography. It was <laughs> wonderful. You were working on that a uh, little bit in class, or you told some stories from that in the class. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, what's nice about the, the, those is they're, they're short, so you can fill a program up with however many you need. You can just kind of dovetail one into the other. Right. That's good. The hardest thing to come up with is a short story. Uh, for me, anyway, I mean, most of my stories run 20 minutes or longer. Uh, so when uh, you know, I have a, a request for a short piece, there are maybe three, four I can rely on. I'd like to have more. Tell me something, because I, I, like, I think our listeners would be really interested to find out how you got started in storytelling. Well, I was actually um, raised in storytelling. Uh, I was born in 
St. Paul, Virginia, a coal mining camp at the time. My daddy was a coal miner and a master yarn spinner. And every evening as the sun was going down, he would light a fire in the fireplace. We didn't have electricity. And he'd pull up his easy chair and we would gather around him and he would start spinning yarns. Uh, it was entertainment. My mother used it for discipline. Uh, we were never told not to do something. We were told what the consequences, a story about the consequences that could happen. Yeah, if we committed a certain bad deed. Um, so we learned it. We, it was a learning tool for us. It was entertainment for us. When I was living in Hartford, Connecticut in 1988, um, the first annual celebration held at that time, it was a Connecticut event only. As you know, it's a national event now. I missed that. that was celebration, right? Yes. Celebration, uh, and it's always held the weekend before Thanksgiving. Uh, in most states, uh, there's at least one. And I went to that storytelling uh, event just mainly to see how the Yankees measured up. And, you know, what I found there was fascinating to me. It was storytelling, but done professionally, which had never even occurred to me. So I took all those stories that I had spent years writing and, uh, parlayed them into oral um, instruments, oral communications that I could share on the stage. Have you ever done any story or any performing art or anything like that before you did storytelling? I had done some theater. And I was, uh, you know, in in elementary school, I was often called in front of the class stories. And I would just make them up off the top of my head. It was was a way to keep classmates um, interested and, and you know, keep them from getting distracted and distracted and causing trouble. Uh, you know, um, I know that I've heard storytellers that actually take other stories, whether they're, you know, uh, fables or myths or uh, like American Indian stories and things like that. And, and there, I, I'm guessing there are many storytellers who just use stories that are already written and they perform those stories. Yes, you have some very wonderful storytellers who do that. And a lot of them will take those old stories and uh, put their own twist on them. So it's 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 a familiar story told in a unique way. And then, and of course, there's people like you and I who tell our own stories. Yes. What percentage of people would you say, uh, you know, the people who tell stories that are already written and the people that tell their own stories? What would you say generally in storytelling with, with storytellers? What would be the percentage? Well, based on the last storytelling festival, I went to the last national storytelling festival in Jonesboro in October 2009, I would say maybe 25% are relying on folk tales and stories that are, uh, you know, already exist. Uh, Almost everyone there, 75% of the tellers there were telling their own stories, most of them family or personal stories. That's awesome. I I think... um I just think it's so great that people are, are, are actually uh, taking their family histories in a way and turning them into stories uh, that they can tell other people because I think people can really relate to all experiences that we have. Well, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a way to honor family. It's, it's very therapeutic, though. Storytelling is not therapy. But, I mean, to share something from your life and have others appreciate that you're sharing it. I mean, there's nothing that, there's nothing that feels better. You know, I came from the Appalachian Mountains to Portsmouth, Virginia, the city, and those city slickers used to laugh at us every time we talked. Uh, my parents were very wise people. 
But nobody in Portsmouth knew that because uh, nobody listened to what they said. They were too busy making fun of the way they talked. And I could put my parents in my stories. And I talk exactly the way that they talked when they were in my stories. And afterwards, people will say to me, you had wonderful parents. <laughs> and I wish they could hear that. I mean, there's nothing better than to hear uh, your parents being complimented that way. And for me, it's a vindication for them. Right. It's a way of honoring their memories. So both your parents have passed? Yes. My father passed away in August of 87 and my mother in February of 89. Hey, uh, one thing I was uh, I was going to ask you was, uh, what's your favorite part of being a storyteller? My favorite part of being a storyteller is um, the response that I get afterwards. Um, I think the nicest compliment I've ever been given as a storyteller was um, given by a woman in Shrewsbury, Connecticut, when I was appearing at the Old Vienna Coffee House. Oh, I remember that. Um, yeah, a great place. And... Um, she said to the woman who had put the show together, who had who had hired me, I love telling Linda. I love hearing Linda Goodman tell stories. When Linda tells stories, I feel like everything is going to be okay. <laughs> That's great. And the other wonderful thing is people don't forget it. You know, I go back to New England, and I haven't lived there in 12 years now. And people will come up to me and say, I remember when you told that story. And they don't only remember the story. They also remember details about the story. And so I know I've made an impact. If somebody remembers my story that long, then I've done my job. I've done what I wanted to do. You know, I remember the first celebration uh, when I, after I took the class and you got me involved in, in uh, a lot more storytelling events and things. I remember going to celebration and I had a friend with me and you told a story that you had to get permission to tell. It had, the story actually belonged to someone else about saving time. Mm-hmm. And ah, you remember that. I've forgotten that. <laughs> to this day, she whenever I mention your name, she says, oh, I remember that story. Oh, well, I'm glad. I really wasn't happy with the way that one turned out. Really? <laughs> uh, yeah. I guess because it was somebody else's, so I didn't have the personal connection that I usually have. And that night, I mean, I was really a jittery mass of nerves anyway because one of our tellers had not shown up. And um, you remember very well that I came over to you and said, hey, Chris, somebody didn't show how about telling a story with us. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. And, and I was like, and you know what, because I had, and actually I had performed at the old Vienna house for many years as a uh, guitarist, singer, songwriter. And so I was very used to performing, so I didn't even think twice. And it was a small group, and I thought, hey, what the heck, you know, it's a good group to, to get my feet wet in. And you stole the show. Oh, no, I don't know about that. Oh, you did. I recall it very well. Many many people in the audience told me that. And, you know, no nerves. It just looked like, you looked like you've been doing it all your life. Well, in, in many ways, I, I think I had. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I've, I've just uh, I've just really enjoyed You know, you've just, you were great. You were, uh, I always tell people that you're my storytelling mentor. Well, I, I consider that a high compliment, Chris. <laughs> Because I think you're a wonderful storyteller. Thank you, Linda. Well, let's take a break right now, and uh, we'll be back shortly. Well, welcome back to Hear Women Tell, and we have Linda Goodman with us today. She's a wonderful storyteller. Linda, um, kind of continuing on with the line of question I was going with, uh, What's the most challenging 
thing about storytelling? Uh, the most challenging thing is getting work. Mm. You know, for me, story writing comes easily. Storytelling comes easily. The creation part is is, is um, second nature to me. Mm. But, um, you know, it's sometimes challenging to find jobs. Um, it, it takes it takes a lot of marketing. And I'm, I'm a pretty good marketer, but I guess – Marketing's not fun, so for me, that's the hardest part. Yeah. Uh, so, like, so how do you generally um, do you get calls, people on your website? Uh, how do people normally contact you to do storytelling? Is it word of mouth or? Oh, a lot of it is word of mouth. Um, in fact, I would say most of my work comes from word of mouth. Uh, I do very little marketing anymore because I, I'm getting enough work through word of mouth to keep me busy. Um, but I get emails, and most of those people have searched me and found me on the website, and, and they will email me and ask about my storytelling. Some of them will email that they have a friend of a friend who heard me and uh, thought I'd be a good addition to their event. Uh, others are interested in the Appalachian uh, culture and, and would like to have me in for that. Some people just like my writing and because of that, and, and some people think I'm Linda Goodman, the astrologer. And uh, <laughs> oh, I was. And they're disappointed. <laughs> all the time, yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things that you know, I don't think a lot of people know about is that you're actually of Melungeon descent. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. The Melungeons are one of the mystery people. Um, their their origins or their first origins in the United States were found in the. Uh, Mountains of Southwest Virginia, Kentucky, West Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, when the first European settlers migrated to the mountains, they found a people living there. Um, they were living in villages with Christian churches at the center. They called themselves Melungeon. They uh, claimed to be Portuguese. Nobody knows where they are from originally. There's a fellow named Brent Kennedy who's written a wonderful book called Melungeons, The Resurrection of a Proud People. And his theory is that uh, back in the 1500s when, uh, the, when Spain explore, expelled the Jews and Moors, uh, they put 300 of them on a ship and sent them to the New World where they uh, migrated west. They uh, met up with the Portuguese settlers at uh, St. Fort Alina, uh, or Fort St. Alina in South Carolina, migrated west, intermarried with uh, renegade Indians and escaped slaves, um, and the, these were the Melungeons. But nobody knows. It's, it's all theory. Um, there is a, a wonderful event that happens every other year. It's the Melungeon Union, and the 14th Union, actually I think they're having them yearly now, is going to be on... June 23rd through the 26th at Lincoln Memorial University um, in uh, Tennessee. So uh, if you would like more details on that event, you can go to www.melungeon.org. That's the Melungeon Heritage Association website. Now, what do they do when they're – I mean, is it like a festival sort of a thing, or is it just a – you know, the um, usually there is some music. The last one I attended, Ron Short was there playing his music, and he's wonderful. He plays um, 
he writes a lot of his own music, and I guess you know it's hard to categorize it. Some of his some of his uh, songs are have almost a rock flavor. Some have a, a folk flavor. The stories he did at that uh, particular um, event were um, old stories and songs about uh, indentured servants that had come to the New World, that type of thing. But you know we have. Music. We have a lot of scholarly presentations. People that have done research present, prevent the work. The, um, the results of their research. Uh, um, have they? Are, I, uh, I'm thinking now. My mind's going crazy. I'm thinking. Uh, geez. I mean, they could. I, there was a program on recently where they took people's DNA and they could tell them where they were from in Europe and everything. Mm-hmm. I, and there have, in fact, been DNA t- uh, tests done on the Melungeon population. Um, and it's interesting if you read the Coalfield Progress, which is the uh, paper of my hometown in in Norton, Virginia. Um, it will say DNA proved Kennedy right, and then you've got the Richmond Times Dispatch, which carried the headline DNA proves Kennedy wrong. <laughs> um, actually, there was Mediterranean DNA found in the Melungeon uh, subjects tested, but uh, the majority was Scotch Irish, right? Native American, Mediterranean Jewish, um, and lots and lots of Scotch Irish. Well, down here in South Carolina, there are a lot of Scotch Irish. Matter of fact, they were a major, particularly here in Horry County, where we're situated here in Myrtle Beach. Uh, lots of Scotch Irish. So I'm not surprised about that. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I never really, when I was growing up in the mountains. My family lived in isolation, and we would go into town about once a month. And sometimes my daddy would go, and sometimes he would take me with him. Sometimes he would take one of the other, one of my brothers or sister with him. Um, and, you know, we weren't treated well in town. I remember going into the general store, and I think it was in Esserville, and reaching out to touch a candy jar. And the woman behind the counter slapped my hand oh. and said, Leave that alone. Every time you people come in here, we have to wipe down everything you touch. And I walked out of that store, and and my daddy was walking out of the store across the street, and I could see and through the glass window behind him the man behind the counter furiously scrubbing that counter. And uh, for many years, I thought that someone somewhere in my family had had committed some heinous crime. Wow. That we were playing. So and finding out about the Melungeon connection. You know, my grandmother always said the Melungeons are the lowest of the low. Finding that connection made me realize it wasn't anything personal. It was just discrimination. Right. I think I misspell this every time. How do you spell Melungeon? M-E-L-U-N-G-E-O-N. Okay. And again, that website is www.melungeon.org. Um, so what what are you working on now? You must be working on new stuff, right? Uh-huh. Uh, you mentioned in the intro that I wrote a book called Daughters of the Appalachians. Mm-hmm. I performed that as a one-woman show for years, and you know, lately some theaters have actually picked it up. It's been done in Massachusetts, here in Virginia, in California. And um, it's been so successful that I am writing a sequel. Are you really? Yeah. Um oh. It's a series of uh, six women. Mm-hmm. Oh. Monologues, and the narrator is Marthy Potter, who's 94. 
But in the sequel, she is, the sequel is going to take place several years after the Appalachians took place. So uh, Marthy Potter will be dead. And one of the other characters in the book, Bougie, is going to be the narrator. Right. I remember her. <laughs> yep. Uh, so this is so this is really uh, I remember you saying that these six women that are part of this monologue are um, are like um, composites of people women that you knew growing up. Yes, uh, they the women are fiction, but they are based on real women, and most of them are a combination of two or three women. Right, I, and now I I should tell people that you and I have performed this together. That's right. You scored the. Uh, the show the first time I had ever had music with it. Right, right. Uh, Linda had asked me to, just for our listeners, uh, Linda had asked me to put some music and sound effects with the program. And uh, the last time we did this was in Culpeper two years ago, Culpeper, Virginia. And uh, we got a standing ovation. Great. Strolling to perform with you again. Well, the funny part was we hadn't done it in like 10 years, and, and I had to have you send me a videotape <laughs> just so I could kind of get myself together again. Yeah, I keep wondering when it's going to come the time that, um, I'll be too old to do that series of stories. I mean, it takes a lot of energy to do all six of those women. I know. Well, I know when we did it in uh, we did it in Gettysburg for the uh, what was the mass it? conference. Yeah. Can you tell people what that stands for? Mid Atlantic Storytellers. And you did three women then, which I guess that would be a little bit easier. Or maybe you only did a couple, so you can actually pull pull some of these out and do them separate. Yeah, of the six women, each of them stands on her own, with the exception of Marthy Potter, who ties the other five women together into her own life. And, um, you know, at, at, at the mass conference, we only an hour, and the show is two hours, so we had to settle at three women. But I think everybody felt like it was a nice, well-rounded show, because, as I said, the only woman who doesn't stand on her own is Marthy Potter. Yeah, I, I, uh, it's, a, it's a great program, and if, if if our listeners are ever anywhere where they can hear you perform this, it is fabulous. Uh, I, I just, I, I, I just really enjoy listening to you and, and getting into you get into the characters and all these stories are, of course, different uh, types of stories. There's a ghost story, there's a romance, there's all sorts of things like that. So, okay, well, we're going to take another break, but uh, stay tuned because we are going to talk about a story that. Uh, Linda uh, performs and wrote that uh, actually um, ended up in Chicken Soup for the Mother's Soul. So we'll be right back with that. Welcome back to Hear Women Tell, where we interview storytellers. And I've got Linda Goodman today uh, visiting with us. You know, I have a I just wanted to do this. I hope I don't embarrass you, but I have a review uh, of Daughters of the Appalachians. See, I said it right that time. And it's yeah, actually, you did. It's actually by a woman I'm going to be interviewing who now lives in Calabash. Joan, is it Leota? Yes. Yeah, she lives in Calabash, uh, North Carolina now, just up the road from here. Great lady. Uh, so so this is uh, this is a review. It says, if you are a storyteller, if you're interested in portraying historic characters, if you like good writing, this slim volume is for you. And, and uh, I just want to mention here that that was published by Overmountain Press, right? That's correct, in uh, Tennessee, Johnson City, Tennessee. And uh, um, if people wanted to purchase this book, could they find it like on uh, Amazon.com? Yes, it's on Amazon.com. Okay. And then, so here's the rest of the review. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, Goodman creates six characters drawn from a strong woman in her southwestern Virginia childhood mountain roots. 
Each tale can stand alone, but together they form a saga of the southern Appalachian mountains that helped shape their lives. The clear, strong voices given these women by Goodman's pen lifts them from any stereotype stigma. They are very real, almost too real in some cases. And then she's got a little, uh, is this a warning down here, I guess? Uh, warning. Despite its subtitle, Six Unique Women, do not expect to be able to read this work now and again. Each story is separate and complete, but each begun, the power of Goodman's writing will hold you tight until the book is completed. It's a must-finish book from the moment your eyes lock onto page one. That sounds great. <laughs> that does sound great, doesn't it? I'll have to read that book. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it says it's even more powerful to read aloud, and I have to tell you, Linda, that's what I did because uh, I'd heard you tell it, but I just, you know, to read it, I just, I, I actually did read it aloud by myself. I, the people probably thought I was crazy. I would love to hear Goodman herself perform it. Her ability to make it, it live in two worlds is a testament to her poetic capabilities and skill as a storyteller. You must have been thrilled to get that review. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, now you have this story, and it's called The Bobby Pins. And yes, my most requested story. Yeah, and it is in uh, Chicken Soup for the Mother's Soul. Can you, can you just give us some uh, background on the story? Where it came from? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, a couple of years after I began telling professionally, I started hearing about the healing power of story. And my first reaction was New Age poppycock. Um, but then something happened that made me see storytelling in a whole different light. In February of 1989, um, that evening, I was studying economics exam when I received a phone call from my mother. Now, I'm the kind of person that when I take a class, I'm very, very focused. And I was studying for an exam that I wanted to make an A on. I was the kind of person, I am the kind of person who cries if I make an A minus. Oh, no. So, uh, oh, yeah. So I, I told my mother, Mom, I can't talk right now. I'm studying for an exam. And she said, but I, I, I'll only be a minute. And anybody who knew my mother knew that uh, there was no such thing as a minute conversation with her. And so I said, Mama, I'm studying for this exam. I will call you tomorrow. And as I put the phone down, I could hear her saying, nobody wants to talk with me. Well, I felt very guilty, and I started to call her back. But, you know, if I did that, I might not get the A on this exam. So I went back to, I studied until well after midnight, and the following morning I went and took the exam, got my A, went to my office, prepared to call my mother and find out what was up with her. And before I could get to the phone, it rang. It was my brother Alan calling to tell me that my mother who had not even been sick, had passed away during the night. Wow. So I got on a plane. I flew down to Portsmouth, Virginia, which is where she was living at the time. Uh, My brothers and my sister were there as well. And as we prepared for the funeral, I discovered that my mother had called each one of the four of us the night of her death. And she had gotten the same response from all of us. Too busy right now. And each of us had heard her say, nobody wants to talk with me. Well, by the time I got home, as you can imagine, I was just a mass of guilt. I I hated myself. You know, my mother 
I had refused to talk with her on the last night of her life. I, I couldn't live with that, and I did what I usually do in such situations. I don't want to think about something. I throw myself into other things. I did extra volunteer work at church. I uh, signed up for community theater. Uh, I took even more classes. Drove my husband and my daughter crazy. <laughs> Finally, my husband, Phil, you've met him. He's a very wise man. said, Linda, you need help. You need to see a grief counselor. And I found a, a very wonderful grief counselor in Coventry, Connecticut. Her name was Jenny. I'm unfortunate I don't remember her last name. But after a couple of sessions, she said, you know, Linda, the best thing for you to do is to deal with this through your storytelling. And I thought, well, I'll... Uh, I'll give it a try. And I wrote a story called The Radio, which was about, about a very special Christmas present that my mother had given me when I was in the second grade. And I started telling that story to audiences. And, and as I did, it was like I could feel my mother's love just wrap around me. But that wasn't helping. I wrote another story called The Punishment, which was about a, a fake whipping that my daddy had given me. Actually, it was a story of the first time my mother ever hugged me. And I shared that same thing. Uh, audiences loved it. I could feel my mother's love. But this wasn't helping me because, you see, the problem was not my mother's love. That had never been in doubt. What I needed was something that would convince me that she knew that I loved her. And that's why I'm so thankful for that Bobby Penn story. Uh, it's a great story. Um, w would you like to tell the story right now? Sure. Okay, go ahead. <clears throat> When I was seven years old, I overheard my mother tell one of my friends that the following day was going to be her 30th birthday. Two things occurred to me when I heard that. Number one, I didn't know my mama had a birthday. Number two, I had no recollection of her ever getting a birthday present. She for sure had never gotten one from me. But I could do something about that. I went into my bedroom I opened my piggy bank. I took out all the money inside, five nickels. That represented five weeks' worth of my allowance. And I took those five nickels to the little store that was around the corner from my house. And I told the proprietor, Mr. Sawyer, that I wanted to buy a birthday present for my mama. Well, he showed me everything that could be had in his little store for a quarter. There were lots of those little ceramic figurines my mama loved those, but she already had a whole house full of them, and I had to dust them every week, so I said no. Then he showed me some little boxes of candy, and my mama had sugar diabetes. I knew that wouldn't be an appropriate gift. The last thing he showed me was a package of bobby pins. Now, my mama had beautiful, long, dark hair. And every Saturday night, she would wash it and she would pin curl it. And the next day, she would look just like a movie star when she took those dark pin curls down and those curls cascaded around her shoulders. So I decided that those bobby pins would be the perfect gift. I gave Mr. Sawyer my five nickels, the bobby pins. I took them home, wrapped them up in a colorful sheet from the Sunday comics. And the next morning... While my family was seated at the breakfast table, I walked up to my mama and I said, Happy birthday, Mama. Well, she took the package from me, and as she started tearing at that newspaper wrapping, tears started sliding down her cheeks. 
by the time she got to the bobby pin, she was bawling like a little baby. And finally, I said, my mama, I, I didn't mean to make you cry. I, I just wanted you to have a happy birthday, all. And she looked at me, and I could see that she was smiling through those tears. And she said, oh, Linda, this is a happy birthday. In fact, this is the happiest birthday I have ever had. Why, did you know? That this is the first birthday present I have ever gotten in my entire life. And then she kissed me and she said, thank you, honey. She walked over to my brothers and she said, look at here. Linda got me a birthday present. She walked over to my sister and she said, look at here. Linda got me a birthday present. She walked over to my daddy and she said, now look at here. Linda got me a birthday present. Then she went to her bathroom to wash her hair and curl it with those bobby pins. Now, after she had left the room, my father looked at me and he said, You know, Linda, when I was a youngin' back on the frontier, we didn't set much store by giving birthday presents to adults. That is something done just for little youngins. And your mama's family, well, they were so poor, they didn't even do that much. But seeing how happy you done made your mama today, well, it's kind of made me rethink this whole birthday issue. What I'm trying to say here, Linda, is I think you've set a precedent. My mother was showered with birthday presents every year from my brothers, my sister, my father, from me. On her 50th birthday, my brothers and sisters and I pulled our resources and bought her something spectacular, a ring set with a pearl surrounded by a cluster of diamonds. And when my brother Lee presented her the velvet gift box at the party that was given her in her honor, she opened it, she looked inside, and she smiled. And then she turned that box around so that her guests could see the ring. And she said, don't I have wonderful children? And then she passed that ring around the room. And it was thrilling to hear the collective gasp that rippled through that room as that ring went from hand to hand. After the guests had gone, I volunteered to help clean up. I was in the kitchen doing dishes when I overheard my mother and father being in the next room. Daddy was saying, well, Pauline, that's a mighty pretty ring you got there. Reckon that's about the best birthday present you've ever got. My own eyes filled with tears when I heard a reply. Well, Ted, this ring here is awful pretty, and that's a fact. But the best birthday present I ever got, that was a package Every time I hear it, I love that story, Linda. That is so good. Thank you. That story was what made me realize that the conversation my mother and I had on the night of her death was just one moment among many, most of which were quite wonderful. Well, we're going to take a break right here, and we'll come back with Linda Goodman in just a minute. Welcome back. Here, woman, tell. We're interviewing storytellers, and we happen to have Linda Goodman here today, who's from Richmond, Virginia. Uh, Linda, Linda, I was just, uh, what's, what's coming up for you? you have some stuff going on? Well, I'm going to be doing some storytelling at Camp Rainbow at the Virginia United, Virginia United Methodist Church Assembly Center in Blackstone, Virginia, in July and August. And uh, I'm going to be headlining uh, the stories by the Sea Storytelling Festival at Virginia Beach United Methodist Church in January. Uh, the the Camp Rainbow events are not open to the public, but the festival in Virginia Beach is. Okay, that sounds great. So is this the first time that you've told stories at the Virginia Beach Stories by the Sea? 
No, this is actually the third time they've had me. But they're having you as a headliner this time. Yes. Well, I've been a headliner. I was a headliner last. First time was just to introduce me to the area. And then a year later, they had me come back as a headliner. That was about three years ago. Uh, just so everybody knows, um, Linda is one of the most connected people I know in storytelling. I, every time I talk to you, Linda, you, you have news from, you know, this is happening, that's happening, this already happened, uh, new tellers. I, I don't know how you keep your ear to the rail, but you're a wealth of knowledge. And because of that, Linda's going to be a regular part of Hear Women Tell, and I've asked her to, to do a segment called News and Reviews each week. And she's, she's, she's going to uh, do reviews of uh, storytellers, CDs, and books, and that sort of material. Plus, she's going to keep us updated on some of the major events that are happening in storytelling. And uh, I certainly uh, am so happy to have her do that because she's going to really keep us informed on what's going on. Linda, um, just tell us what's happening. Recently, one of the most beloved storytellers in Virginia and I dare say even the country recently passed away. On May the 23rd, we lost Rocky Rockwell, um, who was from Bristol, Virginia. And, Chris, if it's okay with you, in honor of his memory, I'd like to read a review that I wrote on his last CD. Oh, sure. Please do. Um, this review was written in 2000, and it was published in The Tale Trader, which is a, it was a wonderful publication that, unfortunately, is no longer around. Um, we've seen a lot of good storytelling publication and organizations go south in this economy. But the title of the CD was Tales from Castle Yonder, and again, the storyteller, Rocky Rockwell. Rocky Rockwell is an ex-journalist who has never learned to stop collecting stories, much to the delight of his fans who cannot wait for his next tale to unfold. His new CD, Tales from Castle Yonder, does not disappoint. Known far and wide for his unique addictive humor, Rockwell has produced a collection of stories loaded with laughs, but with a bit of sentimental reminiscing thrown in for flavor. The stories on this CD take the listener down a road that begins graduates to wit, and ends with profound wonder at the marvels of this journey called life. The world's first story, set in the year 3003 million B.C. on August the 2nd, a Tuesday, recounts the story of Og, who in the process of telling the world's first story, invents acting, visual arts, medicine, rock music, religion, and the scientific method. Turning 65 comically recounts the horror of sliding down the razor blade of life that turns a man of importance at age 64 into an irrelevant and old man at midnight when he turns 65. Remarkably, Rockwell's voice seems to gradually age as the story progresses. Lethargy recounts the story of Pete Boudreaux, a linguistic expert who runs a general store in Lethargy, the hub of all commerce in Mississippi, where the great national pastime is not baseball, but bum-fuzzling Yankees. Rockwell serves the story well by recounting Pete's tale and the flat southern drawl peculiar to his home state. Tall tale lovers will appreciate Hurricane, Rockwell's interview with George Broadwater, the sole eyewitness to a moment of high drama when Hurricane Hazel came to a small town in Maryland. This dramedy of chickens and lawyers has us a surprising twist at the end. Hacksaw introduces us to poor Miss Lila, who must decide what to do with Hacksaw, the world's ugliest dog, when his master passes away. 
A newfangled telephone contraption figures prominently in this farcical drama. The tone of the CD changes with Sugar Shack Salome, a story of human cruelty gleaned from Rockwell's day as a journalist. While Rockwell never published this story in his newspaper, he took great satisfaction from knowing that its subject, a 400-pound woman beaten down by ridicule, had a brief moment in time when she had been Salome, the seductress. The CD ends with a family story in which Rockwell reveals the amazing circumstances of his birth and subsequent adoption. Ironically, Rockwell never heard this story until at age 64. He decided to take a storytelling cruise that required he have a passport. To obtain the passport, he had to discover his origins, thus beginning a series of revelations that led him to conclude, I am the luckiest man alive. In sharing this story, he gives us a piece of himself, and we are the richer for it. Bluegrass interludes by the VW Boys separate the stories and serve to enhance and set the mood for each tale. Rocky is given unique and grand with this CD, which will be a treasured addition to any storytelling collections. And if you'd like a copy, I just spoke with Mimi, his wife, before the program, and she tells me she still has copies available. You can get them from her by contacting her email, which is www.mimi at gmail.com. I think it's, it's Mimi. Can you just spell it Mimi at gmail.com? Yes, it's um, M. You're right. I'm sorry. I gave you a website. It's Mimi, M I M I dot Rockwell at gmail.com. Mimi dot R O C K W E L L at gmail.com. Sorry about that. Okay. So, uh, Linda, thanks for doing that uh, segment there, news and reviews. If, if a storyteller would like to have their material reviewed, how would they get in touch with you? Um, all they have to do is send me an email at, happy, at AOL.com, and Happy Tales is spelled T-A-L-E-S, all one word, all lowercase. And if somebody wanted to go to your website? www.lindagoodmanstoryteller.com, and I also have a blog. Okay. And that's at lindagoodmanstoryteller.blogspot.com. Well, thank you, Linda, and we'll be back uh, shortly here with news from Linda Goodman on Hear Women Tell, where we interview professional storytellers, and we'll be right back. <laughs> 